navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Today, uh, we are in part three, and really one of my favorite topics is the handling of depositions. I know many of you have been joining me in my prior series here where we've talked about you know, construction, um, catastrophic accident cases, how to litigate a personal injury case, and we've touched on preparation and conducting depositions. Today, we're going to talk about not just how to handle a deposition, because we've sort of talked about you know, how you handle them, but what the goal is, what to do to prepare and conduct and have a successful deposition in a construction accident case. And what makes depositions and construction accident cases so important is that they really form the basis for you winning or losing your case, more so, I think, than probably many other cases. Because it's, you know, it's whether or not you're going to satisfy the elements of the statutes we talked about uh, at the beginning of this series. And that would be uh, the labor law section 200, labor law, which is more of the common law negligence uh, statute. Then we have labor law section 240, subdivision one, known as the scaffold law, which is strict liability. And uh, that's for gravity-related accidents when people fall from heights while working or have something that's in the process of being hoisted or lifted or moved that falls from a height and hits a worker. And then you have Labor Law 241 Subdivision 6, uh, which is an industrial code violation, something happening that's unsafe at the workplace. So when you're conducting these depositions, your sole focus needs to be on establishing the elements of some or all of these statutes with the goal of getting that information that you need, checking off the boxes, fill in the buckets, whatever uh, analogy you want to use, getting the goods so that you can then cut and paste that testimony into your motions for summary judgment, uh, followed by or previewed by the applicable law that supports your argument. This is how you win the cases doing the depositions, and then we're going to talk next month about what you do once you have this great testimony, which you're going to get, because I'm going to show you how to get it, uh, how to use that to get summary judgment. Now, you all know I'm a plaintiff's attorney. I've never defended a case in my life, but I know a little bit about what goes on on the defense side from doing this for a long time. And I'm friends with a lot of you uh, who conduct uh, cases from the defense side. And it's equally important that the defense counsel prepares the same way the plaintiff's counsel does for these depositions, because my colleagues on the other side of the V, as we say, uh, defending these construction accident cases, they want to get summary judgment also. They either want to get it against the plaintiff and get the case dismissed. They want to get it against uh, other co-defendants. There's something I've come to learn is known as loss transfer which is we sue you as the building owner and contractor, but you're going to sue the employer and bring them into the case and try and get them to pay the tab, uh, get their insurance policy in play, get them to pay the legal bills based on either contractual or common law indemnification. 
So you have to do your due diligence. You can't just sit back in these depositions. You have to fight to get the elements out. That's going to help you uh, be successful with a summary judgment motion. So it's really, really important depositions in these cases. And by the way, a deposition, another word for that is examination before trial or EBT. Uh, everybody calls them somewhat different things, but it's all the same. EBT, deposition or examination before trial or questioning session. This is where the rubber meets the road in these cases. And you must, must, must follow my mantra. What's my mantra? Preparation, preparation, preparation. You have to take the time to properly prepare to conduct these depositions. So what does that involve? How do I prepare for a deposition? And again, I'm here to share with you what I've been doing for 25 plus years. Uh, it may not be the, the perfect way or whatever it is, but I found that it's worked out quite well. And uh, I'm here to share it with you. And if you find that it can help you, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to try and help you and give you some tidbits. So I'm opening up my playbook. That's what I do in these series to let you see how I do it. Uh, and if you like it, then you can use my materials, my methods to try and help you. Now, what you want to do to prepare for any deposition in a construction accident injury case is consume all the information you have in that file in advance. You need to read and look at everything. What am I talking about? The discovery that you demand before the deposition, first of all, make sure you get that discovery before you conduct the depositions. If not, adjourn the depositions, make motions to compel. But you're going to want incident reports. You're going to want contracts between all the defendants, all the parties. You're going to want to see whether there's indemnification, who's in charge of safety, what their understanding is contractually between the owner, the general contractor, the subcontractors, the employers. So get your hands on every report every contract, photographs from the site. Um, you're going to want to look at the ambulance call reports uh, from any accident and see what the first responders report as a narrative of why they're on the scene. Is it in there saying we arrived to the scene where it was reported to us that the injured party fell from a scaffold about 14 feet high and did not have a harness on? You know, these are the things you're going to want. You're going to want to look at incident reports. Find out who the witnesses are. Uh, find out all the details you can, okay? Now, if there was a tool involved, a power tool, if there was a piece of equipment involved, such as a forklift or an aerial lift, or as I've talked about in my Gary Harrigan case where he was on an aerial lift that was actually a scissor lift. So it's they call it that because it looks like a scissor when it's collapsed and then it opens up and it, and it goes up high and it tilted over. So in my preparation for conducting the depositions in Gary's case, I learned everything I could about that scissor lift. I looked up the make, the model. I went online. I found videos. I got the user manual. I read the user manual. I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to find out whether someone needs to be certified to operate it. What certifications do they need to have? Do they need to have a license? Do they need to have anything? You have to do your homework. All of this information you need to do in advance. And what else do you need to do in preparation for the depositions? You need to do your legal research. 
In Gary's case, I researched every case I can find in every appellate department in New York State involving some type of aerial lift tipping over, right? I wanted to see what the appellate departments looked at, uh, what language uh, was used in their decisions, what issues came up, when was it granted summary judgment, when was it denied, when was it upheld on appeal, when was it thrown out, so that I knew what to look for. You have to look beyond where you are in the case. You have to look at what's going to happen after these depositions, after I make my summary judgment motions. What if the defense makes a summary judgment motion? Am I going to survive that if I'm a plaintiff? What if the plaintiff makes it? Am I going to survive it if I'm a defendant? What do I think is going to happen on appeal? What are the appellate divisions in my jurisdiction? How are they handling these cases? So once you've done all of that preparation, then you're ready to sit down, put pen to paper, as us old folks say, I guess now it's fingers to keyboard, and uh, start preparing an outline. It's like preparing for a trial, a thorough, good deposition on a serious injury case uh, where you need to get certain information to make out your case, just like doing a, a direct examination, a trial to get the elements you need, or a cross-examination. It's the same thing. You need to know what the magic questions are. You need to know what it is you need to ask. You can't just show up and just ask general questions without a plan, because then when it goes time to make or oppose a summary judgment motion, you'd be like, hmm, did my client say that? Did they, were they asked that? Did I ask that? I don't know. Let me look back. You don't want to be in that situation. You want to proactively know what you've got. All right. So once you prepare, you make an outline and you decide, first of all, who, right? The title of uh, today's um, lecture is the who, how, what, and why of deposing construction accident witnesses. So you want to see who it is you're going to depose. All right. Now, you definitely want to depose someone from the, the company, the entity that was in charge of this construction project. Now, as we talked about earlier on in the series, under the law, the strict liability that comes with 240 and 241, those statutes of the labor law, applies to the owner of the property and the general contractor overseeing the project. So you need to make sure that you take the depositions of the owner and definitely the general contractor. Sometimes they're not known as the general contractor. They may be known as the construction manager. They may have different names, but ultimately you want to find out what company was overseeing the construction, okay? What entity? And you're going to need to take the deposition of that entity. That should be your primary deposition as a plaintiff that you want to notice and take. Usually you will get a witness. And if you're asked, who do you want to have produced? Or if you want to designate one, uh, you're usually going to get someone with the name superintendent in the title. Uh, there's a senior superintendent. There's a site superintendent. Uh, sometimes it's the site safety superintendent or a site safety officer. There's usually a designated person for the construction company, whether we call it the general contractor, GC. I'm going to use the phrase GC throughout uh, this lecture. And when I use that, please uh, know it to mean general contractor or construction manager. So you want to take the deposition of the GC 
and their person in charge and has knowledge over the construction site. All right. And what generally do you want to ask of that GC? Well, you're going to want to ask everything relating to the labor law statutes and the elements, right? You're going to want to find out who's in charge of safety at the site. You're going to want to find out who the project manager was, if not this witness. You're going to want to find out who the employer was of your client and did they have a contract? You're going to use this initial GC witness to give you a lot of information. And let's talk about this witness. We're going to talk about the different who's, and I'm going to go through what you want to ask them about. And a lot of the witnesses, you're going to ask a lot of the same things about, and I'll address that. But let's talk about first and foremost, the witness from the GC. All right. You want to confirm on the record, who's the owner of the site? Who is the general contractor? So you're going to ask, after you get through the preliminary questions, you're going to ask the superintendent or whoever they produce from the GC, um, what was your role? What was your company's role? Did your company, was your company in charge of overseeing this construction site? Were you hired by the owner? Who was the owner? And you obviously have a caption already, you're, you're underway. So just confirm it, have the caption in your case where you've pled who the owner is, who the GC is, and have that and go right through it. Was, you know, Len Lease Construction the um, general contractor or con construction manager of this site? Yes. And who are they hired by? Uh, UNGZ Universal Group. Okay. Is UNGC Universal Group LLC exactly have, how you have it listed in your complaint? Were they the owner of this property? Yes, they were. All right. So now again, you're establishing the owner, you're establishing the general contractor. So when you go to make that motion for summary judgment, you certainly don't want the opposition to submit, yeah, we're not the owner, or yeah, we're not the contractor, general contractor. Uh, that hasn't been established. We denied it in our answer. And you want to avoid that. So you want to get those locked down. You want to find out about contracts. You've already demanded them if you've done your job properly in discovery. You want all contracts. Was there a contract between uh, UN uh, GC Universal Group and uh, Len Lease? Let me see it. Oh, we got in discovery. Is this the contract? Have you reviewed it before? Did you, as the GC, have to hire subcontractors? Who were the subcontractors on this job site? Was my client's employer, Coordinated Metals, a subcontractor? Yes, they were. Did you have a contract with them? Is this it? Market for evidence. Yes, this is it. Have you seen it? Have you read it? Uh, did you negotiate this? Uh, confirm all of that. So, and go through the language of these contracts. According to your construction project that you have signed off with the owner, it indicates here that your company is supposed to be in charge of site safety. Is that correct? Yes. And what does it mean to be in charge of site safety? Does it mean that it's your duty to make sure that all the workers are safe? Does it mean that it's your duty as the GC in charge of site safety to make sure that all the laws regarding safety at a construction site are complied with? What steps did you take to do that? Did you have meetings, safety meetings? Did you require certifications? So you're going to ask all of these questions. And in those contracts, sometimes there's really good language and it points out things that they are required to do as the GC or construction manager. It may have in their indemnification agreements. For those of you who don't know what that means, 
it means if the owner gets sued uh, under the labor laws, the owner can say, hey, I've got a contract with the general contractor saying that they're going to indemnify us. Basically, they're going to cover our tab. They're going to step in our shoes if anybody gets injured and sues us at this job site. They're going to provide the insurance coverage, which they're required to, to get for this job. They're going to provide payment for uh, defense costs. That's called contractual indemnification. And if you're the defense lawyer for the owner of the site, you're going to want to be asking these questions during this deposition as well. If plaintiff's lawyer doesn't, you better do it because you're going to want to get your client off the hook, this loss transfer, and establish, yep, this contract, there's indemnification, right? So this was your understanding? Yes, it is. And then we will often see when we move for summary judgment as a plaintiff in these cases that other motions are filed at the same time. The owner will file a motion for summary judgment on their indemnification claim to be held as a matter of law. They don't have to pay the general contractor. All right. So you're going to want to go through all of this. It takes time. These are long, detailed depositions. Usually you need to be organized. You should pre-mark these contracts. You should highlight them. If you're doing it on Zoom, you want to have them saved in a folder labeled, pre-marked, so you can share your screen, you can show it, uh, get organized for this. All right, um, Michelle, I realize we're about 20 some odd minutes in. You want to do the first set of codes? Sure. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D-817. Again, that's P. O-D-817. So getting back to questioning of the GC's witness, usually a superintendent, after you lay out the roles and the players and the contracts, then you're going to try and find out, do they have any details about the accident? Sometimes they're actually there on site. They witnessed it. They were involved somehow firsthand or they responded to the scene. Sometimes they weren't there that day uh, and they really have no detailed information. But either way, you need to ask their knowledge about when they learned about the accident, where they were, what if any role they had, what if any paperwork was generated. You need to do that of every witness that you question in these types of cases and especially the GC's witness. Then you want to start checking off your boxes for the labor law statutes. Again, sections 200, 240, subdivision one and 241 subdivision six. So we know that under section 200, you have to prove actual notice and control of the work. So if you have a general contractor who, and you don't have what you feel is a strong statutory violation of a scaffold case or a 241 sub six, but maybe there was something dangerous going on there that should have been stopped, that doesn't quite fall into 240 or 241.6. In order to hold the uh, general contractor responsible, you have to show they had notice of this uh, and they failed to take steps to remedy a dangerous condition and that they had control, they had the ability to do that. Some of them will say, listen, we hire the subcontractors and they're in charge of their crew. We can't tell their crew what to do. Um, we can go and tell the, their boss and their boss can deal with it, but I can't go right up to a worker. They're not going to take direction from me. 
uh, I don't have that ability. I just I go to their supervisor, right? So you want to find out about that. You want to say, you know, if you saw this condition that caused the plaintiff's accident, um, did you see it before it happened? Did you see the unprotected hole in the work site? Um, did you see someone up on a scaffold without uh, any safety devices like harnesses? If you wanted to, could you have demanded they stop working until it's fixed? Could you have told them go put on a harness? These are things that you would need to establish uh, as part of making out a 200 case. Now, if you're pursuing a labor law 240 subdivision one case based on the scaffold law, gravity-related accidents, you're going to want to ask questions. Was there a scaffold? Do you know how high it was? How high above the ground was the plaintiff at the time the plaintiff fell? Do you know um, what if any safety devices were in use? Do you know if the plaintiff was provided with safety devices by you or the subcontractor and failed to use them? Okay, that gets into, if you remember from our prior uh, discussions on this topic in the last two parts, the sole proximate cause and recalcitrant worker defense. If you're on the defense side, you want the kind of testimony that says, yeah, we had them all wearing harnesses. And yeah, we insisted and we checked and the plaintiff had a harness on when he went up on the thing. I stepped away for half an hour. I didn't know he took it off and fell as a result of not having it on. But yeah, he was supposed to wear it and we gave it to him. So is that the testimony or is the testimony going to be, we don't deal with that. That's up to the employer. The employer has to make sure. Okay. And then you say, all right, well, what steps did you take to make sure the employer uh, ensured proper safety devices to prevent falls from a height? And so you're going to get all those details. And if they don't know anything, they don't know it. And that's fine too. But you want to get the answers. If you, you know, when you're doing depositions, Sometimes it's not just what you get from the deposition, but it's what you sort of what we call knockout, knockout witness. You don't have to worry anymore that someone's going to come in and give testimony that's going to hurt you because you've asked them already at their deposition if they saw it and they said no. So you don't have to worry about them showing up and saying, oh, yeah, we saw it and this is what happened. Again, you're going to look at the elements of your 241 subdivision six claim. That's the industrial code. Um, if it's slipping hazards. Uh, which is the code that you're pursuing was violated here. Then you're going to want to ask the GC, were you aware that it was wet? Uh, did you do a walk of the site that morning? I see in the weather report that it poured raining all night on this outdoor project. What if any steps did you take to make sure that any slipping hazards were uh, remedied? Whose obligation was that? Uh, so you're going to want to ask all of these questions of the GC witness to help you establish uh, the elements of your case, of the statutes that you're uh, making your claim under, or of the defenses that you have, okay? Let's see, what else as far as the, the sole proximate cause again, you'll notice, and I'm gonna go through the materials uh, in a moment, that as a plaintiff, and as a defense counsel, you always want to ask questions about, was the plaintiff a good worker? Did the plaintiff follow orders? Did the plaintiff ever refuse to do something that you directed him or her to do? You need to ask those questions because that goes directly to sole proximate cause, which is the only defense to a 240 subdivision one case. 
the labor law scaffold law, okay, which is strict liability. If you prove there weren't safety devices and it was a height-related fall, gravity-related, and it falls well within that, comparative fault doesn't matter, contributory negligence doesn't matter. You have to prove that it was the sole proximate cause of the accident was the plaintiff's failure to follow orders, to use devices provided. So I proactively asked that of every witness. Um, Gary Harrigan, my client, the guy that fell, you know, he was tied off, right? He was tied off with his uh, safety harness to the basket, right? Um, did you tell him anything that, you know, to do something that he failed to do? No, no. Do you have any reason to believe that he didn't follow every order he was given? No. Um, was he ever a problem on the job site? No. Can you tell me what type of worker he was if you knew him? Yeah, he's a great guy. Always worked hard to get the job done. Did he always follow directions? Yes. Did he report to work on time? Yes. All right. You want to get that out as opposed to what if the testimony is, well, you know, to be honest, he showed up drunk sometimes. Uh, he used to take off his harness all the time. We'd always have to remind him and reprimand him. You need to find out the story here because it can help you or it can hurt you or it could be neutral but it's gonna affect you whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant uh, on what type of uh, response you get from those questions, all right? So you need to do that. Um, so let me just check. Okay, you're gonna to wanna to find out about, you know, what licenses and certifications were required to be on the job site, uh, what interactions there were between the GC and the subcontractor to make sure that the subcontractor's employees were properly trained, were given the proper safety devices. So you're gonna to wanna to explore all of that, okay? The other two witnesses that I wanna talk about that are important to address in handling in these cases is the employer of the injured party and the coworkers of uh, the injured party and also the plaintiff, the injured party, him or herself, all right? These are the additional depositions you need to think about in these cases. Now, the employer is typically brought in as a third-party defendant. So in Gary's case, we sued the owner, we sued the general contractor, we sued the Lyft rental company, the, the Lyft manufacturer. You are not allowed to sue the worker's employer. You are barred from bringing a lawsuit against them under the worker's compensation law. Worker's compensation benefits are the sole remedy in New York State and in most states for workers who are injured on the job. So we couldn't sue Gary's employer, even if it was totally their fault for the accident. We have to sue the owner, the general contractor and the like. But what'll happen is they will usually bring in, they will implead or third party in the employer for contractual indemnification, common law indemnification. They were told either by contract or it was an understanding that proper safety devices would be provided and supervised by the employer. And the employer is the one who failed to do it. So they're going to want to get contribution and indemnification from the employer. So you'll be taking, even though you're not suing them, they're going to be part of the case, part of discovery. So we're able to take the deposition of Gary's employer, Coordinated Metals, and you will always be able to take the deposition of the employer, the injured party, when they are a third-party defendant. Okay. And if they're not a party to the case, you can serve them with a non-party witness subpoena and get their deposition. And what you want to get from them 
is much of the same as what you want to get from the witness from the general contractor. You want to ask them questions about the job, what they were there to do, what your client's role was, how long your client or the plaintiff, depending on what role you have uh, in the litigation, whether you're defense counsel or plaintiff's counsel, what were their duties, uh, what was their level of training, did they have certifications, can you prove it, did you ask for it, were they required to have a 30-hour uh, OSHA card, were they required to have a card that authorizes them to operate an area lift, um, was it valid? Do you have it? Uh, did you have to submit it for the job? You can go through the contracts with them and make sure that they've complied with them. You want to ask the same questions about, you know, sole proximate cause area. How was Gary as a worker, as an employee? Um, why did you make him foreman? Is it because he always followed the rules? Uh, did he ever give you a hard time? Did he ever not follow rules? Did he always do what he was told? You want to ask all of that. You want to ask them about what training they provided and did they have any obligation to provide training? What kind of training do they have? The employer. Does the employer even have knowledge to train their employees in safety? You'd be surprised. I've questioned countless people that own, and it's usually in smaller operations, but such and such deck company, such and such masonry company that have their four or five employees that get subcontracted out to go work on on projects or developments. Um, and they don't know anything from safety. They never even heard of the rules uh, of the labor law, the industrial code. They don't even know what's required. So how is your client or how's the plaintiff supposed to know what's required if they're not taught? They're just there trying to earn an honest living uh, doing manual labor and getting it done as safely and as quickly as possible. So you wanna ask the employer all of those questions. You wanna ask the employer what type of safety devices, if any, do they provide to their workers? Do you give, uh, did you give Gary Harrigan his hard hat? Who's responsible for that? Oh, he has to bring it himself? What about tools? Do you provide any tools? Oh no, they have to bring it themselves. What about harnesses? Did you give them any harnesses? What about scaffolds or ladders? Who provides that? Who makes sure that they're in good condition? Who makes sure that they comply with the latest standards to make sure that they're safe, to make sure that they're not frayed or worn out? Um, Whose obligation is that? Do you know? Is it yours? Uh, have you ever given Gary a safety harness? Why? Do you know under what circumstances you're required to give him a harness? Uh, do you leave it to his discretion? How do you know if he knows when to use it? So ultimately, you could run into a situation we frequently see where the employer doesn't know anything. His guys show up or gals show up to do the job. The general contractor as part of the arrangement, hires the subcontractor, the mason, the electrician, the laborer, the iron worker, carpenter. Uh, and in the contract, it says, you will make sure to provide all safety devices and you will make sure to provide appropriate scaffolds for the height related issues. And it's in the language. And then when I question the GC, they say, no, no, that was on the employer. And when I ask the employer, they're like, I don't know what this stuff means. So you can use this stuff in your summary judgment motion. So it's important that you ask about, it, all right? Again, you're going to ask all the questions regarding all the labor law statutes about notice, about um, how high the elevation was where they were working, you know, what type of safety devices, uh, sole proximate cause. You're going to want to get all of that out of the injured party's employer, okay? Any communications they've had with the GC, 
uh, as a result of this accident, as a result of any prior safety issues? Uh, did you ever report to the general contractor and to the site safety supervisor that you needed more help? You needed more um, safety devices for your crew to work properly. So you want to find out about their interaction. You want to find out during the deposition whether they've communicated about this accident. Who rendered what reports? Whose obligation was it to write up what happened? Did anybody do an investigation? I forgot to mention that with the GC. Say, well, if you were in charge of site safety, did you do an investigation as to why this happened? So that it doesn't happen again? So that more workers aren't injured? You want to ask if OSHA responded to the scene? If anybody got cited for an unsafe practice at the work site? These are all things. It's usually the employer who will get cited before the GC. So you want to ask them. And you should be doing your homework as part of the preparation and pull through the freedom of information law. Any citations issued against the GC or the employer resulting from this accident. And then if you do have those, then you ask the employer or the GC about them. Did you pay this fine? Did you fight this? Why didn't you fight it? Why did you just pay the fine if you didn't do this, if you didn't do anything improperly? That's all fair game. We talked in prior parts about whether or not the OSHA citations are admissible. And what I told you is I'll speak to you about what you do with that in depositions. And this is what you do. Even if the document itself may not be admissible in evidence as much as I believe you can get it in, but let's say it stays out, the citation itself, you're certainly allowed to ask, um, did you have any correspondence with any governmental agencies about the happening of this accident? Yes. Who? OSHA. Oh, what was that about? Well, they sent us a citation. Okay, did you dispute the citation? Did you submit any paperwork, any proof, any documents? Um, oh, you didn't? Oh, you just paid it? So you didn't dispute where they alleged that you had an unsafe work practice going on. This is all stuff you could bring out in depositions, use in your motions, and ultimately use at the time of trial. Now, when the plaintiff is deposed, when I'm preparing my construction worker injured plaintiffs for their depositions, what I'm prepping them for is solely, I guess pun intended, the sole proximate cause defense questions. I'm prepping them. I'm saying, listen, they're going to try and blame you for this entire thing. Okay. That's the only way they get out of this case. So you need to show that you are just doing what you're told and you follow the rules if they say, wear this, you wore it. If they ask you, was a harness given to you? Your answer is no, if it wasn't. Did anybody uh, tell you what you need to do or what not to do? So you want to prepare your client. You want to explain to your client what the defense counsel is going to be asking so that they're prepared to handle these questions. Similarly, if you are the defense counsel questioning the plaintiff, you're going to want to go hard at this. You know when you're up on a scaffold, you're supposed to wear a harness. How many times prior to this had you worn a harness? How many times had you been up on a scaffold? Why is it on this one occasion you didn't? Just because no one told you to? But you knew you were supposed to wear one, right? Because you had done it. So you want to figure out creative ways to try and establish a sole proximate cause if you're on the defense side it's on a 240 case. Otherwise, comparative fault is in fair play. Uh, in a 200 or 241 sub six case, you saw the slippery floor, didn't you? Why didn't you report it to anybody? Why didn't you go another way? Why didn't you wait 
until it was cleaned up before walking over it, carrying those weights and slipping and getting injured. You could have stopped and reported it to someone, but you chose not to. Do you know if anybody else knew it was even wet there? Or were you the first person at the job site that day? Isn't it fair to say nobody knew it was wet until you got there and you walked out there and, and you fell? So when you're doing the plaintiff's deposition on the defense side, you have to focus in on your elements of defense. And those are the questions you need to properly prepare to ask. And you'll see, I'm going to share my screen with you in a moment in the materials that as a, an attorney questioning a witness, you have to get the answer to your question. You will notice that when your adversary hears you asking a question that can elicit testimony that could be harmful to them, they're going to try and object. They're going to try and block it. They're going to make speaking objections. They're going to say asked and answered. Do all kinds of things to get you to move off of that topic and move on. You have to be diligent. You have to get the answer to these important questions before you move on. And I'm going to show you how I've done that in the materials. Lastly, witnesses, coworkers. Obviously, um, if you have a friendly witness, let's say it's a coworker of the plaintiff who's happy to work with plaintiff's counsel and tell you all the knowledge they have. Oh, yeah, they never gave us harnesses. I was right next to them. They didn't tell us anything. You know, I didn't have one either. This could have happened to me. You know, you're going to want to get that information, prepare them, help them lay out the elements for you when they're questioned or when you question them. Um, similarly, if you're on the defense side and you have a good on the ground witness who was there, who knew things, who could show that there was a sole proximate cause or comparative fault, you're going to want to, you know, elicit that testimony. You're going to want to find out their knowledge about the accident. You may want to get the height if it's an elevated accident from these witnesses. So again, witnesses to the accident, you have to question if they actually saw what happened to bolster uh, your side of the case, or at the very least, knock out what you think they could say that might hurt you. And if they have testimony that's bad, you want to grill them. So let's say, um, I'm going to show you in a second that I have a transcript that I've shared with you uh, where the owner of this masonry company, his son was a co-worker of the injured party. And they were both up on this scaffold that the injured party fell off and died. And we're worried that the employer's son, who was a co-worker, could have been like, oh, yeah, we all had harnesses. He never likes to wear them. He chose not to wear it. He could have really sandbagged us. So we wanted to be prepared to be like, well, you didn't tell him to put it on and you didn't report it to anybody when you saw it and you didn't have yours on. And you know, it happens to be your father's company, right? And you don't want them to get in trouble, but whatever it is, you need to be prepared for that. Now, in the materials uh, that I've given you, I've given you three deposition transcripts from prior construction accident cases I've litigated. And I'm going to go through them very briefly with you, but I recommend that you take advantage of them. Uh, I have the permission to give them to you, but again, the case, the, the materials that I give to you from my cases, even though they are closed and not active, I ask that you please keep those confidential solely for your use and not to disseminate to anybody outside of this program without uh, prior approval from me. I appreciate that uh, because I give it to you knowing that it can be helpful and I don't want to run into any problems. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen with you and we're going to look first at the deposition, the first deposition in your materials is the one of the general contractor in Gary Harrigan's case. This is Lend-Lease 
This is the deposition of Len Lease, uh, the GC overseeing the project. And um, this is on page 13. The numbers I'm going to give you is the PDF number. So if you go to the PDF in the materials, uh, it's going to be uh, what I'm showing you right now. So hopefully it's up on your screen that I'm sharing. Uh, Michelle, let me know if it's not. But you should be looking at this highlighted part right here uh, of this deposition. And you can see the questions. This is what I'm asking of the site super senior superintendent for Len Lease, all right, the GC. Question, did your position have anything to do with regard to safety at the job site? Answer, each superintendent should oversee somewhat of safety, but I was not directly in charge, okay? Question, do you know who is overseeing safety at the job site? He says, I can't think of the gentleman's last name. The site safety manager was Lenny, but I'm not sure if he was actually there that day. Do you know who Lenny was employed by? Len Lease, okay? So right here, what I've done is I've established that the person in charge of safety at this job site was Lenny, an employee of Len Lease, okay? So we have it locked down. Len Lease uh, was in charge of safety at the job site. And when you look through this on your own, you'll see I locked down who the owner is, who these people were not known as the general contractor. Len Lease was the construction manager, but they oversaw it all. You'll then see if I go down to pages 22 um, of the PDF and 23, I hand him the contract that I got in discovery between Len Lease, the construction manager, and my client's employer, CMI, Coordinated Metals Incorporated. Okay. And I go through it all and I have them confirm does this indicate that Len Lease was the construction manager? Yes, it does. And this was a contract with coordinated metals. Yes, it was. Okay. And then I have them go through here and I go and I find in these contracts any language dealing with safety. So I look at this and I ask him to read a section and he reads it aloud and it says contractor must have a site, I'm sorry, a safety orientation program for all of its new project workers. Document Documents of this orientation is required for the project. Weekly safety meetings with workers of the contractor and its subcontractors are required, right? All of these meetings and results supplied to the contract construction manager. So I go through this and I ask him about that. And I ask him, did any of them participate in the site safety orientation? Yes, right? And who was there at these meetings? Was it, was it Len Lease who ran these? Yes. Did they keep minutes? Yes. Okay, so you can get that, get that information. They were running the meetings. They were in charge of site safety. It helps point the gun at Len Lease. They want to point the gun at the employer. That's fine. You don't care because they're the ones with the duty. And then they can go after the employer. Okay, um, so that's an example of what you want to get out of the GC or these types of items. Now, in addition to that, I'm going to bring you your attention to the to two more transcripts that I have in the materials. And this is on a case called the estate of Keith Bonet. And I know I'm running out of time. I'm going to try and be fast with this. But if I can't get through all of it, we could talk about it in the Q&A or you can look at it on your own. But here's what happened. Keith worked for a small masonry company. They would go and they were hired for a job in Brewster to repoint and brick a new building at a Honda dealership. And to do that, it was a tall building. They had to put up a big scaffold. It was called a hydro mobile scaffold. 
And Keith and his coworker, he worked for a company called Fergozzi Masonry. And he and Joe Fergozzi Jr., his coworker who worked for Fergozzi Sr., the first thing they had to do was erect this scaffold. And picture like two towers that would go up on the sides. And then as they'd get higher on the tower, they'd keep building these towers up. And eventually the platform would elevate, go up and down using hydraulics to elevate them up. But at first they had to build the, the scaffold. So they'd go up 10 feet, they'd build it, raise the platform, build some more, another five, 10 feet, raise the platform. And they would do this in sections. And during the course of doing this, when they were 14 feet off the ground building this, um, Keith fell off. There was no guide guardrails up on that scaffold. There was no harness on. And uh, he was injured. He was taken to the hospital and he ultimately died. So I've attached my materials here for you, two depositions from this case, one from the general contractor, okay, uh, known as BBL Construction, and it's their site superintendent. And the second deposition from this case is of Fergosi Sr., the employer. And I just want to share my screen and point out a couple of things. So I'm going to draw your attention to the Estate of Bonet deposition, which starts at page 56. I'm going to share my screen. Okay. And let's go to 56. All right. This is it, Bonet. And we're going to go down to... Um, page 104. Now, what was interesting is, is this guy, this site super actually walked the job site every day and he walked the job site on the day of the accident. And I got some amazing testimony from him that I want to read to you in the next few minutes because he observed them that morning of the accident. He observed Keith up on the platform working. And here, when you first observe them working, by that I mean Joe Fergosi Jr. and Keith Bonet, they were standing on a platform at an elevation of 12 to 14 feet? Yes. All right, so now I've got, I'm establishing the height that I need. And were there any guardrails in place, I ask them? Answer, no. When you saw them working at 12 to 14 feet on the platform, were they wearing harnesses? No. When you saw them working that morning, were they wearing, were there any safety nets in place? No. Okay. Um, did you see any safety devices that would protect them if they were to fall from 12 to 14 feet? No. And I said, seeing that, did you take any action? No. Could you have taken any action? Here goes to the notice and control. Could you have done something to institute some type of safety mechanism to prevent them from being injured if they fell? And there's that objection I told you about. They don't like that question. Answer. I think that's a trick question, but yeah, in retrospect. And I say, what could you have done? Then we get into objections. Of course, they don't want me to ask that. So I ask it a different way. And I said, at the time you saw them without any safety devices, did you have the authority, if you chose to, to tell them to put up guardrails? Yes. And did you tell them to put them up? No. Okay. And it goes on and on like this. So I, you know, he doesn't stop it. And the accident happens. And now, because we're running out of time, I go to the employer, okay, Fergosi Sr., and that's at page 277 of your materials that I want to bring to your attention. And I got the recalcitrant worker stuff out of him. Let's see. Uh, 234. Sorry, folks. 
Is it here? Okay. Now I'm asking about safety harnesses. And he basically says, yeah, I had them in the gang box. And I say, did you have an understanding as to when your employees were required to use them? He says that was there. I guess when they felt that they were at risk, they should put them on. Of course, blame the victim. Well, when they thought they're at risk, they should use them. So we get into it a little bit. And I said, did you ever tell Keith under what circumstances he was required to wear it? He says, yes. I said, okay, when did you tell him he's supposed to wear it? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> under what circumstances? He doesn't know. So I continue on. And I say, um, did you uh, learn if there was ever a specific situation that would require your workers to wear safety harness? Answer, no. He doesn't even know when they're supposed to wear a safety harness, okay? Um, and then I get to this. I said, was there ever a time that you told him to wear a safety harness and he refused to do so, right? No, okay? There's the knockout. That's where you knock out this recalcitrant witness, sole proximate cause. So I know I got to let uh, Michelle do the codes. I'm going to let her do that, but I'm going to thank you in advance of those. Stay on for the Q&A. Um, Book a one-on-one -on -one with me. It's complimentary for you for 30 minutes. We could talk about anything. Keep listening to the podcast. Please give good reviews to the podcast and stay in touch. And I'll see you next part where we're going to talk about summary judgment practice. Go ahead, Michelle. Okay. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification for today's course is POD948. Again, that's P. O-D-9-4-8. So I want to get to the Q&A, but just, you know, final thoughts uh, before I move on, because I had to abruptly end because there's always so much to talk about. And this is just such a uh, an area that's a bounty of things to get involved in and statutes and fact patterns are always different. Look, the goal here is to dig, 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 question, question, question know what statutes are involved, know what the law is, know as much about the case and get as much discovery as you can before these depositions and just keep asking. And as in any deposition, pretend you're like a kindergrader, kinder, kindergartner or first grader, fifth grader, and just say, what is that? And how is that done? And when would that be done? You'd be amazed just asking the, the who, what, why, and where simple questions We'll get a lot of information and don't be feel like you have to know the answer that they're there to answer it. And unlike trial, where in cross-examination, you don't want to ask a question you don't know the answer to depositions are where you want to ask those questions because you want to don't be afraid of the answer. If it's a bad answer, you want to get it in the deposition and not just wait for it to come out of trial. So you could either move to preclude it or prepare for it or know how it's going to affect your case. You don't want it to come out in a summary judgment motion or some other way. So I think if you do your job and you prepare properly, uh, have your outline, keep following up for witnesses. So I'm pretty positive we pursued the deposition of Lenny, the site safety manager. We did a ton of depositions in Gary's case. Um, keep pursuing it. It's like an onion that you're peeling away the layers to get to what you need. And then you'll know once you're done with depositions how strong your case is. And you'll be in a position, hopefully, to either start negotiating uh, a settlement. Uh, if you're on the defense side and you got good testimony, you could probably try and make the case go away and say, otherwise, we're going to move for summary judgment and it's going to get thrown out. 
if you're on the plaintiff side, you could start negotiating and saying, otherwise, we'll just move for summary judgment and get our liability granted, let interest run at 9% in New York annually, and we'll just pursue you on damages on this big case. Uh, and then make your motions, and we'll talk about that next. So take your time, work hard on these. It's really, the, I think, the most important part of handling these cases. And um, if you have any questions, as always, reach out to me. Here's my info. My email address is here, asmiley at smileylaw.com. My website, uh, my firm website is smileylaw.com. And my podcast site, someone asked the name of my podcast. It's the Mentor ESQ. And you could find it on Spotify, um, Google, Apple Podcasts. It's the Mentor ESQ. Just search it, it'll pop up. And also, if you go to the mentoresq.com, all the episodes are up there. Yeah, Michelle? Episode two, season two. Episode two, two season episode two. Episode two. Michelle, I interview, I interview Michelle. It's a great, great episode. So check it out. Um, but there's a lot of good stuff on the podcast. All my CLEs are up there. So if you've missed one here, you can even do it on my podcast and you can download the form and get credit. Michelle will make sure that gets processed. We have, we have, uh, we're subsidized, so to speak, by the Academy to provide CLE on my podcast. There's interviews with really interesting lawyers. Some of you in the audience have been interviewed by me. Uh, and sometimes I just like to pontificate about things and you can get my thoughts on it. But that's the podcast. All right, let's get to some questions here in the next 25 minutes, and then I'll hand it over to uh, Claude at Smart Advocate. By the way, many of you reach out to me and ask what kind of case management software I use. Um, my firm, we are small volume practice, so we don't really use case management software. Uh, we use our own internal sort of management tools, but Smart Advocate, uh, which is a Academy sponsor, has great software for management. And so I suggest if you're looking for a product, at least stay on and do the Q&A with Claude and he can give you some information about their management software. All right, I'm gonna take these questions in order of how they were submitted. Uh, Patricia Steigman has a three-year-old labor law matter where you that you have where the GC slash owner has not joined the employer in a third-party claim. Why? They've tendered to the employer's carrier. They're doing everything they can to delay the proceedings. I don't know why um, you can, you have to push them, say, why call them up? Say, why haven't you brought in the, the employer? Why haven't you made a declaratory judgment motion? Those are the motions that will often fly between um, the employers, the GCs and the subcontractors uh, will be a declaratory judgment motion uh, to get the employer on the hook. So you need to press them for it. You need to start working the phones I like to say that my defense counsel colleagues always say, I'm not one of those who says, oh, the plaintiff has a big lien in the case. That's not my problem. That's a plaintiff's problem. But I see that as defense counsel as it is my problem, because if I can't get the case settled because there's a lien and I don't have enough money to settle it because of this big lien, I need to see what I can do and maybe get the lien to go away so I can settle the case for my client. It's the same thing as plaintiff's lawyer. You can't just sit back. You have to be proactive. I can't tell you how many cases I'm working the phones between defendants in a construction accident case. Why aren't you moving? You need to move. You need to do a bad faith. You need to, you know, get them to cover it. Why are you sitting on your ass? Let's go. Let's bring it to a head. Um, you just have to work the phones and do what you can to get things moving. And then you have to apply whatever pressure you can make your summary judgment motions. If you haven't, you have to use every legal tool in your toolbox 
to push your case as a plaintiff. And as a defendant, you can't just sit back and delay. You don't want to blow statutes. You want to, don't want to blow opportunities. Uh, you don't want to see if there's chances for disclaimers or otherwise. So you need to move on declaratory judgments on indemnification quickly and promptly. Okay. Um, Denise Rubin is asking any suggestions for limiting retaliatory testimony by the employer when they're pleaded as a third party. So not knowing exactly what testimony you're worried about, but let's say you're concerned that they're going to show up and say, yeah, the plaintiffs are drunk. Yeah, the plaintiff didn't do this or that. I would just, you know, let them say it and then throw it back in their face. Like, oh, but you kept them employed. And knowing that they drink and show up to the job site drunk, you let them go up 15 feet in the air on a scaffold without making sure they had a harness on, you know, turn it around on them. You're the employer. Why don't you fire them? You felt that they were doing their job well enough. Um, ultimately, it's their responsibility to make sure the workers are safe. So let them say it. And then you could say, oh, and this has nothing to do with the fact that your company is being sued because of this. Um, so I'm usually not too worried about that. I usually, I don't really see it that often. And usually when construction workers are injured bad enough and they're out of work, they're not really too worried about their employer anyway. And their employers usually aren't doing them any favors. They may not have workers' comp benefits. They may not be helping them at all. So I usually don't worry about retaliatory testimony, but I prepare for it and I address it and I follow it up in the deposition and make sure that I'm prepared for how to deal with it. Okay. Um, Thomas uh, Shimmerling, I have a deposition tomorrow. All right. My program came at a good time. Passerby had a fall injury as a result of construction debris on a construction site uh, that she had to walk through to get to her workplace. So this is not going to be a labor law case because your client is a passerby. So she's not a worker. So this is going to be a straight up negligence case. I would ask questions about why were why was this area open for passerbys? Why wasn't it secured? Were you aware that people would be walking through here? Um, did you put up signage? Where's the signage? Did you put up tape? Where's the caution tape? Did you have a flag person there to divert people around? Uh, did you make sure that the area was clean and free of debris? So all of those things that you know you have to show that they reasonably could foresee a layperson being in that area. And what of any steps did they take to make sure that it was safe and free of debris? So I would push it along that, find out whose job it was. Was it their job? Was it a subcontractor's job to clean the debris, to make sure that it was free and clear? If you have any photographs or video from the condition that caused the accident, show it to them and say, would you agree this is not safe to have out knowing that people are going to be walking through here? Do you agree that this is a tripping hazard or a slip hazard? Those types of things. So that's what I would suggest. Okay. Uh, Richard Cordero. A bunch of questions here. How many people do I depose on average in a typical construction accident case? It depends. So on the Gary Harrigan case, I probably deposed seven, eight, or nine people because it was a big job with a lot of people, witnesses, contractors, safety people. On the estate of Bonet, I think I just uh, questioned the employer the and the GC, the two that I gave you the materials, and maybe one more, maybe a colleague or witness. So it depends on the case. Um, how long do I depose each deponent? It depends again on, do I have big contracts to go through? Is it a big job site? Is it, do they know a lot? Were they involved in the accident? So I've had a deposition last as short as an hour, usually not less, but as long as five or six hours, it always depends. Um, 
How many depositions need to be transcribed as opposed to being kept as a video audio file? You have to get all of your depositions transcribed uh, and they have to be provided in transcript form to the witness to um, sign off on, make any changes and file the answer, uh, the signature page. How much money does it cost to conduct the depositions and who fronts the money? You need to speak to the court reporting service that you use. They charge per page. So the longer you do it, the more pages there are. A full day deposition can run you 500 pages and it could be three, $4 a page. You could be paying $1,500 to $2,000 or a shorter deposition could be a couple hundred dollars. The party taking the deposition pays the cost of the deposition. Uh, but if other lawyers partake and join in in the questioning, it's usually split and you pay for it out of your pocket if you're a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, and if you're defense counsel, then it's part of your defense costs to be paid by your client. Uh, Nancy, hello. Are New York courts still referring to 240 as a strict liability statute? You had some cases years ago before COVID and the lower courts were reversed on appeal because of the facts. 240 is a strict liability statute, but there's often issues of fact. Was it height related? Were safety devices provided? Is there an issue as to sole proximate cause? So again, on any summary judgment motion you make on any case, you first have to show that there's no disputed issues of fact. Then when you apply the law, that's when you get a decision on judgment or not. So if you have a 240 case, but there's a disputed issue of fact, they're going to deny it and they're not going to grant summary judgment one way or another. So you have to look at your record and you have to see if there's a dispute. So in the examples I've been giving you, for example, in Bonet, if there was a dispute and the employer said, uh, yeah, we gave him a harness and told him to wear it, but he chose not to. And then there was other testimony saying, no, he was never given a harness. Then there's going to be a, a factual dispute as to whether or not he's the sole proximate cause. And they're not going to decide that on summary judgment. And that has to go, it would be a question for the jury to decide. And it wouldn't be right for summary judgment. So that would be those situations, Nancy, where it gets reversed. But it is a strict liability statute if there are no disputed issues of fact. Joseph Sullivan, if you're representing the subcontractor, the plaintiff does not depose coworkers who would help the subcontractor. So do you depose the subcontractor, coworker, or just use affidavits for summary judgment? Great question. And that can apply to other cases we handle. You have a witness that you think has something good that can help you in your case. Do you just use an affidavit or do you take that witness's deposition? Time providing all factors equal and feeling comfortable with it, I will usually want to take that deposition because then you don't have an excuse saying, you know, if I get, if I'm in motion practice and someone uses an affidavit and I haven't been aware of that witness, for example, and it's just an affidavit and I haven't had a chance to question them, I push back hard and say, this isn't right. An affidavit's a piece of paper. I can't cross-examine this witness. So that's why you have to make sure before motion practice that you say, we want to depose every possible person that might have knowledge. That's why you have to work hard on discovery and finding out all witnesses, all people who may have information and take their depositions. So if someone happens to pop up in an affidavit, you say, no, 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 this, you, you have to deny this and give us a chance to depose this witness. So if you know of a witness and know you're going to want to use them in motion practice, the safer practice 
is to notice them for a deposition, let everybody join in and take it, and then go from there and then use that deposition testimony in your motion. Alex, hey, Alex, what's happening? Uh, do you have any tips or methods to deal with the defendant attorneys who block or prevent witnesses from answering? The best way that I can answer that question is to direct you to the materials. Read these transcripts. There's a reason I give them to you. Uh, at this stage of my career, and these are actually several years old, I feel that I do a, a really decent job with my depositions, and I don't get sidetracked when my adversaries try and block me. And you'll see there's a lot of times in these depositions, it was even started in one of the ones I was reading you, uh, where they're blocking, it calls for this, it calls for that. Um, you just stick to your guns and you re-ask your question. You let them know they can't block a question under the rules unless it goes to privilege or it's harassment uh, and have the rules with you if necessary in state or in federal court um, and tell them they can't block it. They can make their objection and the witness has to answer whether they like it or not. And if they still block it, say, okay, we're going to mark this for a ruling and then you get the judge on the phone. You could either do it right there or you can mark a bunch of them, ask all your questions and then call the judge and get a ruling from the judge or the judge's secretary. Always bring the rules that apply to depositions with you uh, and have them available and have the judge's chambers and part number with you when you go to take depositions. So that's how you handle that. Okay, Matthew. I sometimes get the objection from a defense attorney that the witness here is a fact witness and not an expert witness, and they don't allow the witness to answer questions regarding policies. They argue any question not related to specific facts are palpably improper. Judges have gone both ways. So a good defense attorney is always going to try and do that. Hey, hey, you're asking if it's you know a safe practice. You're asking uh, this should have been done or that. In hindsight, that calls for expert again. That was right, I think, in this last uh, question in the Bonet case, uh, in one of these depositions, the second or third one. So you can see how I handle that. Oftentimes, it's just a matter of rephrasing it from saying, well, under the law, are you required to put up guardrails, um, you know, uh, pursuant to statute in a situation like this? They may say objection. You can get an expert to say that. So then you rephrase it and you say, you know, in your capacity as a site superintendent, are you required and were you required on this day to be familiar with what safety devices are required at a job site? And what were those? To your knowledge, were required at your job site uh, that you were in charge of knowing? And did those involve putting up guardrails? So there's different ways to ask the questions and just stick to it, phrase your questions properly, and then get the judge involved and, and pitch your case. And if the judge doesn't let it, they don't let it. But I think you can usually get to where you need to go if you phrase it properly. Joseph, hey, Joe. Joseph Latham, really enjoy your series. If I weren't old and retired, I'd be motivated to get back into active legal practice. Well, there's lots of ways you could get involved. Just participating in this community is great. Maybe uh, you could get involved uh, more in my mentorship program. And that's always a great way to uh, stay active in the field, even if you're not practicing. All right, Ira. Thinking about the second transcript I read, if you were representing the defendant witness, how do you prepare the witness to answer those questions? So I assume you're talking about where I got him to say, yep, I didn't see any guardrails. Nope, I didn't see this. Nope, I didn't see that. Look, I mean, you can't cover up a truthful testimony. And if they drop the ball, he's got to answer truthfully. 
Um, you know, what I tell my clients when I think there's something bad that may come out is do not volunteer it. I'm going to try and object and maybe the lawyer will back off, but I'll do what I can. Keep your answers short. Don't volunteer too much and hopefully they'll move on. But you can't coach or prep a witness to be untruthful, but you can prep them and ask them. Uh, you should ask all these questions in advance. That lawyer may or may not have asked their witness these questions. Did you see it? What did you see? Were there devices? Weren't there? Why didn't you do anything? Have that conversation with your client and prep them the best you can. You could say, well, I saw that, but I really, they weren't that high at that time. And my understanding is, is they were in the process of putting that stuff, installing the guardrails, putting it on. And I didn't think it would have been an issue, whatever it is. You just always need to take your time to prepare your witnesses. We've talked about this in my series previously about depositions. Take the time to ask the tough questions of your witnesses and prepare them for how to handle questions on it. Um, Paula, you're very welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed the program. Robert, uh, interior demo job, debris, construction debris, office furniture, rolled carpets, leaning against the elevator hallway. Uh, someone falls, hits my guy in the head. Assuming all the requirements present, is it a falling object case? Any case law come to mind? Um, I can't think of a case where that's on point. Um, the question is, if the rolled carpets are not secured and they're leaning up against it and they fall, is that an elevation change? Is it gravity related? Maybe. Is it high enough to really be the type contemplated in the statute? Uh, let's say the, the roll is six feet high and the witness is six feet high and it falls off and hits them. Um, does there have to be a difference in elevation? I think you try and argue it. Um, I think it's a tough one, but if it's the only shot you got, give it a try. I think that's probably going to be a tough, tough case for you, but do your research. Each department is different. Just dig, dig, dig. Look as many cases as you can. Ask other lawyers like myself. If anybody out here now, the couple hundred people still on, have any thoughts, help out Robert. Help out a fellow lawyer. Send him some information. Put it in the chat. Tell him to reach out to you if you think you've had a similar case that can help. We all need to help each other, folks. I'm preaching this as much as I can. Plaintiffs, defendants, we help each other. Defendants help each other. Plaintiffs help each other. You know, I mean, this is what we do. We all want to do our jobs well and represent our clients well. We can help each other. And I encourage you to do so. So let's help Robert with his case. Let him know if you think he's got one or not uh, and send what you can. Alexander Berger, I have defendant depositions coming up related to a worker who's injured by metal beam falling through an elevator shaft. That sounds like a 240 case to me. You represent the property owner and the GC. Any suggestions to attempt to shift liability to another co-defendant? Plaintiff's employer is yet to be brought into the lawsuit. All right. Well, the first thing you need to do uh, if you're representing the property owner in GC is you have to implead that um, you have to implead the co-defendants and you have to implead the employer ASAP. Do it now and adjourn the depositions. All right. Because otherwise um, you're going to have to redo depositions. They get brought into the case. They're going to get another shot at the depositions that may be conducted before they're brought in. That's what you need to do. Look at the contracts. See if there's contractual indemnification. If not, these depositions can establish common law indemnification. You are going to be hit uh, under the statute for strict liability as the owner in the GC. Your client will be hit for a metal beam falling through an elevator shaft. I would love that case. It obviously wasn't secured properly. 
Uh, the worker wasn't protected from that. Um, there's a lot of ways that I would make out that case. And I'd point my guns at your clients and say, it's your bag to carry. And if you think someone else should have been responsible for securing the metal beam, maybe there was an iron worker company, maybe there's a subcontractor whose beam it was, who was transporting it, they failed to secure it. Uh, you need to pull all these contracts. You need to find out whose job it was uh, to manage that beam whose job it was to protect that worker. It was either his employers or yours or the other contractor who's dealing with the beam and get them involved in the case and get your loss transfer because uh, that's going to be a tough case for you. I don't see this as a sole proximate cause case unless the guy that got hit with it worked for the company that put up the beam or had the beam and was like, let it resting on the opening of the shaft and said, let me just get down there for a moment to fix something and went down there and then the beam fell. Um, I think it's going to be a tough case uh, uh, for you. So good luck with it. Elliot is asking, defendants often present a know-nothing witness for the first EBT. Next, they object to a second EBT. Any good case law for persuading a judge that we're entitled to a second witness who knows something? I don't know the cases off the top of my head, but you're definitely entitled to a deposition of a witness with knowledge. What I would tell you to look at, Elliot, is uh, Court Rule 202.20 Subdivision D. 202.20 Subdivision D, if I'm recalling that correctly. That is the New York State rule that is basically the codification of Federal Rule 36B which allows you to serve a notice pursuant to rule 202.20D to a corporate defendant to produce a witness with knowledge. So what you would do is let's say the uh, corporate defendant is Lend-Lease, right? And they give you someone who's in charge of contracts, but they know nothing about anything other than the contract process. Then what you do is you serve them probably before the depositions uh, to give them the opportunity to make this the first witness with uh, a notice pursuant to this rule 202.20D to produce a witness with knowledge or who can obtain knowledge of the following matters. One, um, who is in charge of site safety? Two, what contracts were executed? Three, which subcontractors were on the job? And you literally list everything, you serve it on them, then they're required under that statute to produce a witness who either has personal knowledge or can go to the file maintained by the defendants and get that information and show up and give that to you. And you actually go through that list. So that's how you handle it. It's a very good discovery tool that we are using quite often. So um, let me know how you make out, but that's how I pr produce it. Hugh, Hugh Donnelly with your new backdrop. Hopefully I will see you soon in another meeting. Um, does it concern me when I'm asking these smoking gun questions based on the labor law statute that will set up your case for motion for summary judgment, objection to form, or do you just ignore them and proceed or rephrase them? Don't worry about objection to form. I've never had that come to bite me. You just ask your questions. You make sure your questions are proper, are properly phrased, and you pursue them. If they give you the opportunity to rephrase it, or you can say, well, what problem do you have with my question? It's perfectly appropriate. I'll be happy to rephrase it if you could point out why it's improper, you know, and rephrase it. But otherwise, you just keep doing what you do. Don't worry about their objections. Um, David, Dory, hey, uh, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed my program. What do I do when opposing counsel insists on making objections to form and tells the witness not to answer? 
You can tell them that objecting to form does not give them the right to instruct the witness not to answer. They may object to form and then the witness must answer. Or I can rephrase, but clearly under the rules. And if you go back to, I think I have them in my materials for how to litigate a personal injury case from a year or so ago, you can find them on the mentoresq.com, look it up. And there should be one of the parts on depositions. And in those course materials, I'm pretty sure I have the local rule about that. But the if not, you can find it easily. The rule is very clear. You cannot direct a witness to not answer a question. You witnesses must answer a question unless it's to protect a privilege, such as attorney-client privilege, spousal privilege, or if it would cause undue harm, prejudice, embarrassment, that type of thing. So put it on the record, let them know that they're violating this court rule by directing their witness not to answer. It's inappropriate. And if they're insisting on doing that, you're going to get the judge on the phone and call the judge. Okay. Joe Sullivan, if someone slips on the snow on the ground, but doesn't fall from a height, is that still considered falling from a height? I believe that answer is no. Michael uh, Manusis, uh, do you have success in deposing a specialty witness like a safety manager with expert type questions, if not hypotheticals, based on facts in the case? Yes, Michael, I do. You lay the groundwork. What are your qualifications as a site safety manager, right? Why? What is your job? What are your duties? And you'll get out of that person that their job is to make sure that the local, and if they don't say it, you say it's part of your duties to make sure that the local safety laws are complied with, that it's a safe work site, it's a safe construction job. Um, and how do you know what they are? Do you know what this law is? Do you know what that law is? Do you have your certifications? What does this mean? What if any safe safety devices must be produced um, you know, don't you need to know this for your job? Did you know this at the time of the accident? So there are ways you can do that. And I, and I think you should have success. I always do with that. If you have questions that I haven't addressed or that come up in any of your cases, just reach out to me. Again, if you go to my website, thementoresq.com, there's a link right on the homepage to schedule a Zoom. I do them complimentary, 30-minute uh, Zooms. It'll just be you and me. We can talk about anything and everything. We talk about referrals, cases, working them up, values, driving cars, you know, whatever you want, and uh, happy to meet with you. I've already met with 140 lawyers doing this in the last year. It's been pretty cool. So uh, if we haven't met already, let's do it. All right, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Uh, based on the remaining questions, the theme is people are worried about things being objected to, not answered, all that. You're entitled to ask your questions if they're properly phrased. A lawyer can be sanctioned for not allowing the witness to answer. Um, bring the rules with you bring the judge's phone number, do not be shy and make a record. It's great to have on writing saying, I just want to put it out there right now that the rule says this, and I'm reading from the rule and their court report is taking it down. And despite me advising you of the court rule, you are still directing this witness not to answer the question. Is that your position? All right, we're going to get the judge on the line. And then you go for it. You've laid the foundation and, uh, you can go off the record and say, listen, before I call the judge, do you want to reconsider? Do you want to be worried about sanctions or anything? All right. And sometimes I'll get lawyers often to reconsider. So I try that. With that, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, and I'm looking forward to the final part. This is a short series. It's a four-parter. Um, so we're going to wrap it up talking about summary judgment motions leading to appeals, how these cases usually come to an end. 
You usually don't want a construction accident case to go to trial. There's lots of problems that come with that, and we'll talk about it. Uh, and then just a little heads up, I'm pretty sure my next series that we're going to do after the new year, Michelle's waiting, is going to be on how to successfully litigate a medical malpractice case. Again, check out the podcast. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening. Have a great week, and I'll see you all next month.